IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we're going to be talking about our favorite albums of 1999. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? I just hope that people recognize, like, I, I, I want to call what we're doing on this episode, like, heroic. Like, we are, we are, the, we are the heroes <laughs> right now, because uh, yes. I, I actually watched this documentary called 537 Votes, a great documentarian, Billy Corbin, who did uh, Cocaine Cowboys, I believe, and Screwball. And it talked about the uh, 2000 election, and... How that took like 35 days or longer to resolve. And I just tried to wonder. It's like, because I've been, I don't know if I've been on Twitter like constantly in the past couple of days. And I thought to myself, like, how did I get through like 2000? And I guess the answer was A, heavy alcohol usage. And B, just like caring about like bullshit. Like I voted already. I really could use a distraction like a Rolling Stone list right now. Like... And all like I noticed that like the past couple of years, like music publications or the music industry kind of shuts down a little bit more around election day. Like I need non-political content right now. I had already voted. Right. Like I, if I, I would love to see a dumb list of some sort right now. And what I don't want to say what we're doing is dumb, but I think what we're doing is reading the national mood and recognizing that what people want to talk about is the resonance of Moby's play. Right. Well, exactly. I mean, and by the way, the the reason why we're doing 1999 is that the reissue of Summer Teeth, the landmark Wilco record, uh, comes out today. And of course, Summer Teeth is one of the landmark records uh, of 1999. So we just thought, well, yeah, it would be fun to just talk about 1999 in general on this week's episode because, yeah, 2020 is pretty intense right now. I think we could all, you know, stand to hop in the time machine <laughs> and uh, go back to the last year of the 20th century, the last year before that Bush v. Gore election that you yeah. just referenced, which I think was one of the early signs that this century was going to uh, not go that well. <laughs> uh, let's just put it that way. It was like, uh, yeah, that was the first election where the person uh, – that didn't win the popular vote won the election or at least of like modern yeah. times. And it, that's just become a habit. It seems like in recent years. So excited to get into 1999. Uh, but before we get to that, of course we have our mailbag segment and uh, we're getting so many great questions by the way. And I just want to thank everyone who has written to us uh, or, you know, shouted this out on Twitter. Um, it's really great to hear from you. I feel like we have the smartest listeners in the podcast game. Like we're just getting great questions. I agree. So, Thank you so much. Um, and also the best looking <laughs> listeners in the podcast game. So so thank you for that. Um, our question today comes from, uh, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing this name incorrectly, Callum? Callum? It's C-A-L-U-M. I see that name if, on like the internet a lot, and I don't know anyone with that name. So I've never, like in person, so I've never actually yeah, had no, to say it out loud. I haven't either. So, you know. My apologies if I'm, if I'm mispronouncing it. Just know that I mispronounce 
Lots of names because I'm a moron. So it's on me, not on you. Anyway, this question. I often think about an article you wrote, this is talking to me, Steve, in 2017 (laughs) about Beck, specifically the surprise some younger music fans feel when they find out how huge and innovative he was considered in his prime. I'm fascinated by these artists who go from biggest band in the world status to diminishing if dedicated fan base status or sometimes complete obscurity in a comparatively short space of time. Other examples could be the Wallflowers, Counting Crows, or any number of bands that were apparently going to save rock and roll in the 2010s. A lot of the time, this change in fortunes could be blamed on a changing music industry, internal band disputes, or an evolving musical landscape that no longer cares about these bands' genres. My question is, do you guys have any artists who stand out to you as particular victims of this change of fortunes? Or are any artists that continue to amaze you at just how massive they once were? I, for one, am looking forward to the day when I have to explain to my children why Mumford & Sons were the biggest band in the world in the early 2010s. Yes, that will be very that will be a very interesting conversation, I'm sure. Thanks, guys. And... That's from Column. So I have a good answer for this, I think, but I'm curious to hear what you have to say first. Like, who, like, who would you say, like, in our lifetime that you remember critics were all over this band, uh, you know, they were really considered important, and now it seems as though they've lost that status completely and, like, the kids can understand. They don't understand, like, why this person was considered important. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, and also, I just think it's interesting that he mentions the the wallflowers and counting crows because i think it kind of splits this conversation in two ways and also mumford and sons because those are examples of like bands who had massive inescapable radio hits and were never taken all that seriously critically i know counting crows had some pretty legendary uh pans back in the day but i think what we're kind of formulating here i think beck was a great example because um back in the 90s he was someone who Every single move was watched. Like when he did something, it was indicative of a larger trend. And um, I don't, I'm not sure quite yet who that is. I think that's more something you might see in hip hop. Um, You know, like Lil Wayne right now, kind of, or like Kanye. I think that they've kind of reached that status. But if we're talking about like rock bands, I think the answer to this one has to be Arcade Fire Um, because. They, they were like, they were big, like headline Coachella twice type big. Like they were a band that, you know, might not be uh, as ubiquitous as the Wallflowers or Counting Crows back in the 90s. But nonetheless, like about as popular as you could get as an example of an indie rock band. And honestly, I don't even know right now if they could outdraw Interpol, um, even though like Interpol has kind of soldiered on making these like cult uh these like kind of, like as kind of a cult band, but nonetheless, I would say like Interpol's cult is larger. I think they oh, yeah. have an I think they have an aesthetic that speaks to people. Like they goth or goth, yeah, goth or goth adjacent. Like Interpol has that lockdown, and they're big internationally too. I mean, absolutely, they have a, they have a big following in Mexico. I mean, they announced Enormous. their last record at a press conference in Mexico City. Uh, yeah. So they'll, I think, be able to tour for a long time. Absolutely. Did you, did you hear that uh, Arcade Fire song that came out this week, Generation uh, A? And I think this is why they came up to me, because Funeral, like, I could have a five-episode arc about how much that record meant to me. We already did The Suburbs. Neon Bible was also important. But nowadays, it's like I can like I don't check for the Arcade Fire solo records, and the fact that they have like a new song or like are promising a double album 
Like, it, none of this interests me in the slightest. Will I hear, listen to their new record when it comes out? Absolutely. But even on the Reflector tour, and especially on everything now, they were kind of getting legendary for having these half-filled stadiums and so, uh, or, or hockey arenas. And I think that um, it'll be tough to grow. I think if people listen to Funeral, they'll be able to grasp, like, why they were so important or Neon Bible or the suburbs. But I also think that they're kind of kind of being an example of a band that like really fell off as opposed to a, like if we're talking about like acts that were once like considered like super innovative and now are just kind of like seen as part of the like just kind of part of the periphery that I'm not quite sure yet. It might be someone along the lines of like Grimes maybe. But um, otherwise, like, I think Arcade Fire is my answer as far yeah, as... Yeah, like, I mean, just getting back to that song, like, Generation A, which, by the way, this was a song that they played on uh, the Colbert show, the uh, late, yeah. night, late show with Colbert, Stephen Colbert. I, I think it was election night they played it. They Awful did. Awful song. Awful speaking song. Of, spe- speaking just, of fell off, it's like Colbert is, like, in that article you wrote about the uh, that rally that him and Jon Stewart did, it, it, it might be hard for people to assess, like, how important those two were you know in their particular lane yeah yeah so anyway my answer for this is the white stripes uh because they're a band that i feel like i mean i i still feel like they're 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 pretty popular you will still hear seven nation army in every everywhere football (laughs) stadium everywhere but i don't know there's something about them where i feel like in the year like 2000 2001 you know around the time of like white blood cells and then going into Elephant, I just feel like they were considered uh, not only like a hugely popular band, but like an important band. And like when people, mm. for instance, compared them to The Strokes, I feel like a lot of people gave the edge to the White Stripes. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, the sort of authenticity argument that people would have, you know, certainly back then favored the White Stripes. They were a band that had a build up to being popular. They had roots in, you know, the indie rock mm. scene of the 90s before they really blew up. Um, but now I feel like, the White Stripes don't get talked about as much, and like the Strokes have totally overshadowed them as far as like a band from that like return of rock movement of the early aughts. And when I talk to younger people, they tend to have like a negative impression of Jack White. I think largely because of his solo career and how <laughs> he's had all of these moments in the last several years, like where he's put his foot in his mouth in interviews, and you know he just comes off as this sort of like cranky old man reactionary essentially, mm-hmm. which. I don't think it's entirely fair. I, I Maybe this is where the Jack White rehabilitation tour begins, like on this podcast. I think that to some degree, he gets a bum rap from people uh, who are a little too hard on him. Especially like if you set aside some of those sound bites and just like watch him perform. Like he was on SNL a few yeah. weeks ago and I thought he was great. I mean, he's whatever else you want to say about Jack White, he's an electric live performer. I think he always sets aside any criticisms if you just like focus on the music. Um, but yeah, I just feel like in his solo career, um, he's turned off, like, I think younger generations who might not otherwise, I feel like those people might have checked out the White Stripes, but because of Jack White and how he's acted, they're less likely to do that, which I think is unfortunate because their catalog, if you're going to compare it to like bands of their generation, um, I think is as strong as anybody's. There's, it's certainly stronger than The Strokes overall, more consistent than The Strokes. And I say that as a big Strokes fan, but I think it's true. 
I th- it's funny because like the strokes that like Julian Casablancas has also had a very um, scattershot solo career. But um, the voids have like a young following. I mean, I yeah. know this because I've written mixed things about the voids and like very young fans have written into me people who actually don't even care about the strokes huh. and, but they love the voids. I mean, I, so I, th- I think Julian Casablancas maybe because of that, that's helped the strokes. It yeah. seems like because the, the people that love the voids, I don't think it's just Strokes fans. I think it is like a younger audience. Yeah, I think that because when I when I went, I, I remember going to some like uh, festivals in 2012, 2014. There was one FYF where the Strokes and Interpol were headliners, and I think this was like 13 or 14, and just amazed at the number of Strokes shirts because I think that you know compared to the White Stripes, a band that was also very image conscious. The Strokes have a more kind of timeless idea of cool. Like if you were to look, I think what resonated about them in 2001 and what will continue in 2015, 20, I think younger, a younger generation will like look at them and look at their logo and, like, um, and say like, this is a cool band. Uh, and that will, that there's something timeless about that. Whereas White Stripes, you know, as you said, like they're weirder, they're a little more experimental and, you know Jack White, um, but they were also more popular. I think, like uh, at their the White peak. Stripes were more pop, more popular. That's, I think I, so. I, I re- uh, because I, I really think that like toward the end of their career. Oh, absolutely, yeah. They were more like, popular than the Strokes because yeah. they had more radio songs. I mean, the, yeah. the Strokes' window of like mainstream exposure is actually like relatively narrow, and even like Is This It like didn't produce yeah. songs as big as. The biggest white stripe songs like there's no, no stroke song as popular as seven nation army or even like fell in love with a girl like, like yeah what would be like I- the st- icky thump you know? i heard a lot on the I- I- even icky thump i heard on the radio quite a bit i really think that if the strokes i'm, I'm sorry I, I think if the white stripes you know, you know they break up in 2011 if jack white didn't do anything after that yeah i think the white stripes would have a different image now and yeah. in a way i think you could argue that the white stripes would age better just because it's a it's a man and a woman. It's not just five dudes. And like <laughs> like like the Meg White aspect of the White Stripes makes them maybe seem a little more progressive in a way than the, than the Strokes do. I don't yeah. know. I I just feel like Jack White because of the way he's acted and the way he's annoyed people. Yeah. That's diminished the White Stripes. And also like the way Jack White uh, bothers people. He seems like kind of a crank as far as like you know, wanting like analog recording, like a lot of the things he says are like kind of boomerish. You know, right? Like he appeals to that sort of crank, uh, uh, sort of thing. Whereas the Strokes, uh, they seem a little bit more modernized, even if they do project this kind of timeless image. You know, yeah. Even as weird as Julian Casablancas comes off in his interviews and uh, and all that stuff, he just seems way, cool. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, I think because of the voids and some of the things he's done, also just showing up on other people's records, mm-hmm. it's just made them seem maybe yeah, like more hip to younger audiences. I think, or, than, or they don't take stripes. themselves, or they don't take themselves as seriously. Right. Yeah. I mean, Jack White. It's very easy to turn him into like this raucous caricature. Like, if you want to do that, he's giving you the material to do that. Again, I don't think that's totally fair, but I think that's that that's been true. Um, so, good question there. Thank yeah. you for that. And again, if you guys have more questions, please send them to me. My email address is steve.hyden 
at uprocks.com or you can reach out to either one of us on Twitter and we will get back to you. Um, let's segue to our conversation about 1999. This yes. is a very interesting year. As I said before, obviously, this is the last year of the 20th century. It's a year that I associate in terms of the popular culture with new metal and teen pop. I, I feel like those were like the two like kind of big commercial genres of this era. But you also had this thing where you know, the alt rock of the 90s was really, I think, dead at this point. Mm -hmm. And you're really seeing this ascendant form of indie rock, which is kind of replacing alternative rock in a lot of ways. I think like some of the records we're going to be talking about here today have like a mainstream appeal that isn't quite as broad as alt rock, but it's not as niche as like, you know, the indie of like the early 90s or 80s. Yeah. It's really going to be the indie that we see in the aughts, I think, starting to emerge in, in 1999, this sort of like indie that's going to be played on like the NPR station in your town, but like isn't going to be on commercial radio, you mm. know, but it's still <laughs> going to be selling like like a decent amount of records. Um, this is also the year of like Woodstock 99 and, and Columbine. So you have like darkness sort of permeating on the edges of, of the culture. But I don't know how you feel, but like I generally have like pretty positive feelings about 1999. It seems <laughs> like a more innocent time, which I, you know. It clearly wasn't because you have like yeah. school shootings going on. You have like riots going on at music festivals. Um, but I don't know. It, it does seem like the calm before like the 21st century storm when I think about this year. Yeah. I mean, it was a more innocent time because I was like also 19 years old. And, uh, <laughs> right. and, and a more at least as far as the music goes, I think that the way we're going to be talking about 1999 or at least mine is going to be somewhat fictionalized that – because, like, in 1999, if you want to talk about, like, why it was more innocent, like, my top ten, if I were to make it in 1999, would just be, like, a bunch of, like, rap albums that I listened to, like, half of the songs. Like, I would buy CDs for no reason whatsoever. And just, like, I mean, like, I think of, like, Silk the Shockers Made Man or things like, just these, like, very, like, frivolous purchases. But at a time where I didn't have two nickels to rub together... But nonetheless, like, oh, I heard a Timbaland Beats on this one. I got to own this. Or, oh, Swiss Beats is on that one. Um, and I, I really can't access <laughs> what it felt like to spend $18 on an album that I was knew I was going to only listen to, like, nine songs. Right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I feel like... Uh, yeah, that phenomenon is just so like distant. It's so hard point. for people to grasp. Like, wait a minute, you're going to pay. Like, you don't know if this album is good or not. And you're pretty sure it's not going to be good because it's like 75 minutes long. But right. you're going to you and you are dead broke. But nonetheless, you're going every two. By the way, you had to go to a CD, uh, a record store on Tuesdays to get the new album. Like, Although it, it's interesting because 99 is also the beginning of Napster. Which, oh, yeah. So, oh, that so, <laughs> so, so that world that you're describing of like the $18 CD where you're only going to listen to like, you know, a couple songs, that is also starting to come to an end uh, mm. this year. Um, so, yeah, there's like changes in the air, but it's it still feels like – because like the internet was already existing at this time, but it wasn't as central to the world as it is now. No. So it still felt like – you could have a life. I mean, you said this earlier, like with the 2000 election, there was no social media. So like it was easier in a way to kind of take yourself out of the mm. drama of the moment and just live your life. And then you'd go home and watch cable news or something. Yeah. Like, that was the version of that. But it wasn't as immersive um, as it is now. Yeah. And I think in general, like 
the night when I look back on 1999 as it happened with the stuff that we're going to talk about, it really does seem like a more gentle, kind of uh, optimistic time. Like the 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 kind of dread of Y2K hadn't quite set in yet. I think we'll see that in like a lot of the albums that came out in the year 2000, but. 1999 indie rock that was like a big beach boys and beatles sort of year (laughs) right like yeah and even like that's an indie rock but when we look at like the critically acclaimed albums from that year when you look at like midnight vultures or moby's play as i mentioned all these things that have this kind of positive technological sheen to it um it I forgot that all these like darker things that you would mention happened in 1999 because i think in general between that and like the rediscovery of Prince, you know, vis-a-vis 1999, um, good times, generally speaking. Yeah, yeah. Again, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, and I think that these things do take a little bit of time to seep into art, you know, because the music that we're going to be talking about. I mean, a lot of these albums were made before 1999 or early '99, and that dread that you're talking about, that I think did exist in the culture at that time, it wasn't maybe going to manifest itself until art that was coming out in the following year. Uh, although I do think that, you know, it was already showing up in films. I mean, you had Fight Club came out yeah. in 99. You had like The Matrix came yeah. out in 99. They, you know, the, the, these, um, these films that were very critical of mainstream society, consumerist culture, this idea of like sort of stripping away the phoniness of the world and getting to like the truth underneath. Like that was definitely something that people were going back to time and again. Um, but yeah, let's, let's look at the critically acclaimed albums of this year. You've already mentioned a couple of them. I was looking at the Paz and Jop list, the Village Voice <laughs> list. Of- hey, spe- speaking of explaining to the kids, Steve, what is a Paz and Jop list? <laughs> well, yes, there used to be this alt-weekly called the Village Voice that every year There used would- to be alt-weeklies. <laughs> now, an alt-weekly is right. a newspaper that is alternative and distributed weekly, and you would see... Never mind. <laughs> I mean, at some point, I mean, we're going to be mentioning a lot of old-timey things in this episode. So the kids, you might just want to have Google ready. If there's some <laughs> sort of, you know, if there's some term you don't understand, you can just Google it. So we, we, need an, to... we need an IndieCast explainer. Like, one thing that we post on the internet that, like, explains, like, commonly used terms. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, The Village Voice, there was this alt-weekly. They would do a poll of music critics from across the country, asking them for their favorite albums, and then they would compile it into this survey called Paz and Jop. It was the most comprehensive way to figure out critical consensus in a, in a given year. And in 1999, the top five albums were number five, Mule Variations by Tom Waits, <laughs> which I knew you would laugh. Never change, Never change. I happen to... Really like that record, actually. And I would say that if you are a person who has heard of Tom Waits, but you are afraid to delve into his catalog, Mule Variations is actually a pretty good um, entry point. It's like one of his more accessible records. At times, it almost sounds like a late period Springsteen record. It kind of has like a more of like sort of like a, a rock thrust as opposed to like the... I guess, how would you describe it? Drunken vaudevillian quality of some of Tom yeah. Waits' records? Hobocore. Hobocore. <laughs> uh, number four, uh, The Soft Bulletin by The Flaming Lips. Um, circling back to our question, The Flaming Lips to me, in a way, could also fall under that category of like bands that were once critically adored 
that now, I mean, I guess the Flaming Lips still get good reviews, but the, I don't know. I think they're shockingly resilient as far as like a, a live actor, just like a presence, you know, like right. I, I think shockingly resilient, although the quality of the music, you know, they put out a lot of material that I could not care about. But I mean, 2013's The Terror. That's a good album. Yeah. Yeah, they, you know, they're pretty hit or miss. The, yeah. the Soft Bulletin is, is not a record that I've put on. Uh, I can't remember the last time I listened to that record. <laughs> I loved it in 99. I saw them on the Soft Bulletin tour, which was an amazing show. Um, but yeah, I, I've, I've definitely fallen off on Flaming Lips over the years. But maybe I'll get back into them yeah. someday. Who knows? Number three, Midnight Vultures by Beck. Beck taking it on the chin in this episode a little bit. Uh, but I, I mean, despise this, this record. Despise it. This is interesting to me because Midnight Vultures... I feel like it's the record that, like, there's a certain kind of Beck fan who will say that Midnight Vultures is a better record than um, Sea Change or, like, his more singer-songwriter-oriented stuff. Because mm. I think his, like, those records, I think there was a period where maybe his singer-songwriter records were getting better looks. And, of course, I guess Morning Phase, that record, one oh. album of the year, and that's oh, yeah. him working in serious Sea Change. Uh mm. Uh, territory but yeah then then there's the beck fan who will say no that stuff is bullshit the real shit is midnight vultures yeah. i've personally never really connected with midnight vultures i, I tend to find it I, I i find it to be kind of a sticky record uh and it's one of those records where you're like does he really like this kind of music or not like is he making mm. fun of this or is this like uh, i think he i, I think he uh, genuinely I think he genuinely enjoys it, but the problem is that it comes off like a tenacious D type record where they truly love Dio and whatever. But like, there's a certain like 1999 irony to it, and also Jack Black I think was in the Sex Laws video hamming it up. And Deborah like is just a song that if you put this, people think it's oh it's funny because he's singing in a falsetto and it's kind of or like Hollywood freaks where he's like kind of doing like rap and like Prince like funk, but he's like. I I appreciate him taking chances, but it's virtually unlistenable to me. Not mo- mostly because like this thick 1999 irony that some would say like oh I when people say like oh 9/11 killed irony like people couldn't be ironic like I think this is what they were looking at as far as things that would age poorly and it's funny because you said oh the serious Beck the one that's like Grammy nomination Beck. Grammy winning what? back. Yeah, Grammy winning. Well, yeah, I guess the the other, the most recent one or whatever it was called, got the Grammy nom. But like, ironic sticky Beck. That was also just as beloved. So there, you oh, really yeah. can't. Beck could not lose in that time. Well, you know, and as the, as our listener pointed out, I wrote about Beck in 2017, and one of the points of my piece was that, you know, I think Beck represented this idea of. That I think was really prevalent in the in the late '90s that you could combine all these kinds of music into like mm-hmm. one thing, and that would be the thing that made you unique. Whereas I think now people do that organically. It's not something that is like sort of front loaded into your mm-hmm. persona that like you're this magpie type person. It's just sort of a given that you're going to be combining hip hop with rock, yeah, with jazz and pop. Whereas with Beck, that was like his whole personality basically. That like, hey, I, I'm gonna put blues slide guitar over a dust brothers beat and you know that's gonna blow people's minds and i I think the thing with beck you know 
My issue with him is that I feel like he's pretty good at everything, but not yeah. great at any one thing. Like, I don't yeah. think he's a great songwriter. He's not a great rapper. He's not a great singer. You know, he's pretty good at all those things. But it's almost like if you want like a funky record, why listen to Midnight Vultures when there's like so many other yeah. examples of that kind of music that are just better than that? You yeah. know, it's almost like, uh, like the general interest newspaper, you know, like how people are like, well, why would I read this sports page when I can just go to like a sports website? Or why would I read your yeah. political page? When You know, it's like, that's a very sort of 20th century thing that was outmoded once you could just go on the internet and get like the expert version of whatever you wanted. Um, anyway, that's my theory on Beck. Maybe mm. we'll do a Beck episode at some point. Yeah. Um, the number two album on the Passenger Op list was Magnetic Fields' 69 Love Songs. Um, I love this record. I this is, and I'll say this right now, we're going to share our top fives from this year. This is also on my list. Um, and this was a record I hadn't heard for a long time, and I got back into it actually like right before quarantine. Um, I was in Nashville, and I found a copy of it, and I bought it at... Um, uh, Grimey's, the great record store. Great record store. I've been in, there too. In Nashville. And I really loved it. I just kind of, I was just marveling. I mean, I love long albums. I love big, ambitious records. And uh, I was really knocked out by the songwriting on that record. I mean, it's just, I think, a great achievement. And I don't know if he's really come close to topping it ever since. Magnetic Fields, great band of the 90s, by the way. I think mm. their 90s output is great, and after that, I, I tend to lose interest. But that yeah. is, like, I think the pinnacle of their catalog. Massive blind spot for me. Like, I, I, I kind of don't dig his whole vibe as far as, like, being kind of this arch singer-songwriter. But, like, maybe one day I'll have a Magnetic Fields deep dive. That's just... I've never... ever Like, I just a total blind spot for me, aside from a few songs. I mean, he does have this, uh, you know, artiste type persona, I think, yeah. that can be maybe a little off-putting, you know, this idea of like, I'm the modern day Cole Porter, you know, like that was his thing, I think, in the, yeah. in the 90s. Um, but he, he writes great hooks and he is a really good lyricist. So, you know, he delivers on his pretensions. So I think you have a right to be pretentious if you can back it up. So, and I think he does. Talking about the Stephen Merritt. Of magnetic fields, uh, number one, and you've alluded to this already. This record, Moby's Play, um, yeah. is the number one <laughs> record on the Paz and Jop list. Um, Moby, that could have been the answer to our listener question too. Uh, I mean, it's amazing wow. to me. I mean, you know, putting Th this, this record, record at number one. I mean, this is like a pretty good record, but was this like a reactionary thing against like? early 90s indie politics in a way putting inside number one just because like this album was infamous because every song was licensed for commercials yeah. that was like the big story with this record and i just wonder like were critics thinking like hey we're gonna stick it to indie snobs by putting moby at number one <laughs> i don't think that's it because like the the interesting thing is that moby at, at 1999 i thought like people had really turned on him because he he was very well, like very renowned in the early '90s for his more like techno leaning work, and then he did Animal Rights, which was kind of a rock record. I thought his like stock had really gone down, and I, I was kind of shocked to see how renowned Play was at the time, uh, because it seemed to me like at, even myself, 19 year old at the time, it's like this seems very safe, like kind of 
tr troublesome at the way it uses its source material. Um, and believe me, they were, I don't know if they were trying to like get back at like indie leaning ideals. I mean, but the, actually I think it's worth mentioning if you look at the singles list from 1999, here are some of the songs that are in the top 10. This is like the critical brain trust all-star, like the Smash Mouth song, all-star. <laughs> that was top 10. Like critics list saw that as a top 10 song. Live in La Vida Loca and at and Smooth, the uh, Carlos Santana, Rob Thomas collaboration. Ball with the Ball is number 11. <laughs> I, 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 people act like, you know, like critics, like trying to like put themselves in the shoes of like pop uh, analysis is like a new thing that started in like the mid 2000s. Look back at any passing job from the 90s. The singles list will tell you, like, you do have to keep your ear to the radio and kind of put yourself in the position of a listener. It's like, oh, yeah. Uh, no Scrubs, by the way, was the number one song of that year. So, Which I um, think is defensible. Yeah, but no, like, that's, that's great. Like, it's a great song. But Wasn't, uh, like, Smooth by Santana with Rob yeah. Thomas? <laughs> top 10. Top 10, man. Yeah, Ball with the Ball. Like, people uh. looked at that and it's like, oh, this, like... They didn't have, I don't think, 2020 style writing. It's like, what, like, what does All Stars say about us in 1999? Like, I want to dig. <laughs> if, maybe there's like some. I, if I go to micro, if I go to like the microfiche in the library and look at like the the alt weeklies, maybe then I'll see like a really hardcore analysis of Smash Mouth. I just like I, I like to imagine like 1999 music critics uh, at a screening of Shrek and hearing <laughs> All Star and them just. Very thoughtfully rubbing their chins. Yeah. In, and going, in, this song in, in is trenchant. This yeah, song speaks to us. In defense of Smash Mouth, but I mean, what would be what would be number one now? Like, because I I don't think that the I don't think any of these things make the top five now. Like, what would number one be? Yeah, I mean, I was just looking at the top five. There's no women in the top five. I don't know yeah. if there were any women in the in the top ten. Uh, so that definitely speaks to uh, you know what music criticism criticism was like. Uh, I think Fiona was in the top. I think Fiona was in the top ten. Yeah, the Fiona Apple record win the win the pawn. <laughs> yeah, win the pawn. Blah 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 blah. Let, There's like a bunch of words that. after that, um, which is a great record. That's one of her. That might be her best record. It's definitely in the running uh, for her best record. Um, that seems like it could have a shot at number one. I was looking yeah. at uh, other albums that came out in '99. The Destiny's Child record, the writings on the wall. I think that oh, yeah. would definitely be number one, not number one, but like, or it could be number one, but certainly in the top five. Um, I wonder, like, if the Britney Spears record, uh, her her debut, um, yeah. "Baby One More Time." I feel like with pop leading critics, um, I could see that record doing really well. Yeah, um, yeah. Rage Against the Machine did really well that year. The Battle of Los Angeles. I oh, think yeah. that. That that to me, it's like weird. I like never really listened to that album, despite how much that um, I, you know, as a teenager, vibed out to uh, Evil Empire and the self-titled. I think that one would still uh, resonate um, because it. I don't think that album has as much baggage as the first two. Like, I don't know if Paul Ryan was still into the band during that time, because <laughs> like their their politics got much more specific um, in 1999. Like, so. I think that one holds up pretty well, um, and I think a lot of this, th like Summer Teeth, I think would also be up there. But yeah, also maybe Eminem's the Slim Shady LP. I mean, it's kind of a, a obviously a problematic record, but nonetheless, yeah. like when you look at like the impact 
uh, that like, or also Jay Z's uh, Volume Three. My, per- I think that might have been my personal favorite in 1999 at the time, because that was just the like peak of like Swiss Beats, Timbaland, Neptunes, uh, production. Like the it's it's an insane production credits on that one. Where do you think uh, Mule Variations would have ended up? Uh, uh, pro- probably number 11. I think the same people who are like voting for mule variations in 1999 are still at it. You know, I think, uh, I think I <laughs> they would might vote- be like the five guys who are still voting for Paz and Jop in like 18 and 19. <laughs> I would, uh, I think I would vote for mule variations just to troll you specifically, yeah. just to, just for my own amusement, put, <laughs> put mule variations, uh, at the top okay. of my list. It's a good record, though. I do like that record. Um, so now we've reached the point where we're going to share our top fives. And, I, you know, we're already running late in this episode. So I think we both we kind of have to blow through our lists here That's rather fine. than breaking pe- pe- each people know, entry. Pe- people know how I feel about mine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So why don't you share your top five from 1999 right. first? So um, my, my top five, I mean, if you know anything about me through Twitter or what have you, or just have read basically anything I've ever written, you know that Jimmy Eat World's Clarity is like my favorite record of all time. So I'm going to put that at number one for 1999. Um, number two, and to give you a sense of just how important this year was for, um, I guess you would call it like second wave or Midwestern emo, the first American football album is number two, like my second favorite album of a year. So, yeah, like they're just I had a real good time last year writing 20th anniversary pieces. The number three album, uh, I would put this Memorment Plans, Emergency and I. Now, I think this one's important to point out because um, I think 1999 is when I started reading Pitchfork. And I think a lot of it had to do with Emergency and I. This is an album that kind of gets overlooked when you think about like the trajectory of that site. I think that was one of the first albums they really put their stamp on. Um, and when I think about like genre melding for indie rock in 1990, I think this is as good as it gets. Um, there are some parts that are kind of embarrassing now, uh, where he kind of like raps or like has drum machines, but he raps on it. It's sort of, kind of, I'm going to say like this band's a blind spot for me. I don't know if I've heard that record. Yeah. I think that dismemberment plan was a type of act because they were from dc and on desoto records and produced by jay robbins of jawbox that they're kind of like are they emo or not i think bands that are influenced by dismemberment plan in 2020 are definitely emo but back in the day they probably weren't um i don't know how kids would receive this album now but in 1999 it it, it just seemed very it was very groundbreaking but also like emotionally uh it's just an emotionally jarring album, perfect album to describe like what it was like to be, you know, in your late or late teens, early twenties, just getting out of college and like wondering like how to just deal with life. The city from that album is a definitive. Like if you want to think about like what I consider to be perfect indie rock, the city is a song like that. Um, I have number four, get up kids, something to write home about. Super Chunk is a surprising blind spot for me, uh, given my taste to me. Something to Write Home About is like the best Super Chunk album ever. Um, that's it, it sounds all, almost exactly like it, but like kind of better pop instincts and also has that kind of sappier uh, Midwestern sort of lyrical content. Um, that, like Valentine, um, you know, Action in Action. These are songs that dominate uh, an 18-year-old's mixtape uh, making list in 1999. Number five, I think you and I are in accord about that one. Uh, Built to Spills, Keep It Like a Secret. 
pro like a quintessential major label indie rock album. Uh, this is one I bought because of like a lead review in Rolling Stone. And this is when I was starting to get a sense of like what it really meant to be like indie rock or critically acclaimed because, you know, Wilco built a spill vaguely aware of them because they weren't on MTV very much. I think I saw the out of sight, out of mind video once. Um, but I didn't hear them on the radio, but nonetheless, like how are these guys still getting like big, uh, reviews in Rolling Stone? It's like, Oh, this is what it, this is critically acclaimed music. There's like this sort of just left of the center uh, world of rock that maybe I should like get more into. And this is, you know, that Keep It Like a Secret was an album that really pushed me towards uh, the person I am today. By the way, the top five I mentioned, Built to Spill is probably the only one I was really listening to in 1999. The others uh, came later. So I'm going to share my list in reverse order just to amp up the drama of revealing my number one. Because uh, I, I like to have some showmanship when I'm revealing my list. Um, at number five, I put Built to Spill, Keep It Like a Secret. Uh, but since you already mentioned that, I'm going to take that out and I'm going to put in the three EPs by the beta band. Uh, just for the sake of mentioning more records that was from 1999. Yeah, number eight for me. Like I think that's an example of like the kind of genre mashing uh, band that existed in 1999 along with them like super furry animals for example that right. like seemed very utopian back then but nowadays it's sort of uh, not uh, it's it's quaint well I'll and i think of them that. as being like they almost have like a jam band aesthetic except they're oh, playing absolutely. like with electronic music and in indie rock and yeah i really like that record a lot and it holds up very well holds up really uh, well number four Speak Kindly of Your Volunteer Fire Department by Robert Pollard and Doug Gillard. <laughs> I was definitely listening to this album in 99. This is one of the many Robert Pollard side projects. Of course, I've the never Guided heard by of Voices I've never record, heard of this. Uh, the Guided by Voices record from that year is Do the Collapse, which was their big sort of major label record. Uh, try, them trying to move into that built to spill arena, I guess, uh, which was maligned at the time. I think that record holds up pretty well, but uh, this Robert Pollard and Doug Gillard record uh, has one of my favorite Robert Pollard songs of all time, Pop Zeus. Just an incredible song. Love that record. Number three, 69 Love Songs by The Magnetic Fields, which we've already talked about. Um, but yeah, if you haven't listened to Magnetic Fields, definitely get into that band. I think their 90s output is great. Uh, 69 Love Songs, literally has 69 love songs on it over spread over three discs for all my cd fans out there uh mm. but that is a great record number two is the fragile by nine inch nails ah, yes. uh, this is um a record i've actually written a lot about i wrote about this in my book twilight of the gods i actually called this the last classic rock record because mm. i feel like this record has a lot of the hallmarks of like great 20th century rock records it's a double record it was it, it was sequenced uh in uh partnership with bob ezrin who was the producer of the wall and like all these alice cooper records um and it just has like a density of of sound and vision uh mm -hmm. that you don't really hear in a lot of records anymore i mean this was obviously an album made on a major label budget by a guy who had years and years and years of time to pour into it and um I really think it's the Nine Inch Nails record that people are going to remember as being the great Nine Inch Nails record. I guess maybe this and Pretty Hate Machine. Um, Downward Spiral to me is like the – I think that's the one that is the 
definitive. Like, I think the fragile is like kind of the contrarian's choice, at least like 90s. Like, uh, well, but like, I think if you look at Trent Reznor's career overall, I think this is the album that's pointing toward what he's going to become later in his career. Absolutely. When he starts scoring films. And I will, yeah, I mean, look, I think those, <laughs> definitely Downward Spiral is a huge record, very huge record in 1994. I just feel like The Fragile to me is like his magnum opus. I, I, yeah. I really think that like everything that is good about Trent Reznor, it culminates on that record. And I came very close to putting this as my number one record of 99. It's definitely mm-hmm. the album that I like writing about the most from this year yeah. and the one I and, and really like one of the ones I like listening to the most. But of course at number 1 I had to put My Baby Summer Teeth by Wilco. Mm. At number 1 it was a record that meant a lot to me at the time and it still means a lot to me now. Um one of the hallmark records of Wilco's career, one of the records that like you know it, it's part of their sort of magical run which I guess depending on your preference for Wilco either ends with Yankee Hotel Foxtrot or Ghost is Born or yeah. Sky Blue Sky. I mean, I think people disagree <laughs> on like what the end point is. I would extend it to Sky Blue Sky, personally, being yeah. there to Sky Blue Sky. But there's no argument about the greatness of Summer Teeth if you're a Wilco fan. Uh, this is also the period where Jay Bennett was, if not a co-leader of Wilco, he was making the most substantive contributions to that band at this time. I think certainly from a production standpoint, Jay Bennett is all over that record. But also as a songwriter, him working with Jeff Tweedy and and teasing out the more pop side of Jeff Tweedy's songwriting, Jay Bennett had a huge role in that. It's also an incredibly bleak record. You know, She's a Jar via Chicago. Yeah. Uh, Lyrics that are like pretty dark. Uh, And Mm -hmm. and even... uh, like scary at times, um, but just a fascinating record. Uh, yeah. And uh, I have, I, I ordered the reissue. So by the time this airs, hopefully that will have come in the mail. And I look forward to not watching the news this weekend and just listening to that box set and immersing yeah. myself in, in Summer Teeth outtakes. So that's going to be a good time, I think. Yeah, that's also one of my favorites from that year as well. I think the uh, you mentioned the production. That's bec- it's kind of a running joke about how loud the production is on Summer Teeth, and compare especially compared to the Jim O'Rourke stuff that they did uh, immediately after. And I, I I think about like as far as Jeff Tweedy is a pop artist. I know he mentions in uh, How to Write One Song, like he basically wrote Can't Stand It while on a plane because like the label said, oh, we need a hit, and he. Come up with comes up with that song on a plane. Like, what have you ever done on a plane that's like that productive? You know. Well, I once watched uh, Guardians of the Galaxy two and cried at the end. So I, I think that's the most momentous thing I've, I've ever done <laughs> on a plane. Um, yeah. Well, that's why we are not Jeff Tweedy, and that's why we're hosting Indie Rock Podcast. No, not yet, at least. Uh, I'm I'm taking this book and running with it. You know. I hope maybe maybe one day like we'll be discussing my songs on IndieCast. Just got that, that cross promotion sort of thing. All right, we've now reached the point of our episode where Ian and I recommend things that we're into right now. We call it Recommendation Corner. Uh, Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so I assume that anyone who's stuck around for Recommendation Corner for, for me like knows how I feel about the Record Setter album that's dropping today. 
you could find me on Twitter raving about it to the point where it almost seems like redundant to mention it here. But Record Setter, I owe you nothing. Uh, I would highly recommend that if you like basically anything that I've talked about so far in this episode. But otherwise, I want to give a little bit more time, especially if we're talking about 1999 Indie Rock, to a band called The Goalie's Anxiety at the Penalty Kick. They're a Philadelphia band. I believe there are six or seven members. One of them plays glockenspiel, strings, horns. They're on Count Your Lucky Stars records, which um, went on a bit of a hiatus, but were one of the essential labels of the emo revival, for lack of a better term. They put out the first Foxing record. Um, they uh, Empire Empire, the, guy, the people behind that band started it. And so it's great to see them back um, and putting out like really excellent albums that kind of it, it's so funny about like this band and so many other ones that you would lump under emo revival because they speak to like indie rock trends of 1999 like basically if you listen to indie rock from this era and like the 1999 to 2004-ish era and think man they don't make them like this anymore like they totally do and this band draws more on the uh their their new album ways of hearing it's, uh, it came out, I believe, last Friday, and it goes more towards the early Modest Mouse, like kind of that raw, like that raw stretching out to six minutes Modest Mouse. Also, Carissa's weird if you want to like talk about like Pacific Northwest type bands, but in, if you were to hear this band completely free of context, you wouldn't call them emo at all. The problem is they have this name that was taken from a Vim Benders film. And people assume they sound like the world's a beautiful place and I'm no longer afraid to die. They kind of do. But if you're into more of like a Pacific Northwest indie rock of like early Modest Mouse, early Carissa's Weird. um, This is an album that's really going to scratch that itch. In a way, no other album I don't even think is even trying now. So kind of a hidden gem. It's an album that I've recommended to like people who I think might be into it. And they're always into it. So if any of those bands I mentioned so far speak to you, The Goalie's Anxiety, the Penalty Kick, uh, Ways of Hearing, new album out, um, fantastic stuff. Sounds really good for this time of year as well. So the record I'm going to recommend is not a new record. This album came out in 2013, but it was pointed out to me to revisit this record by a Spotify algorithm. I have to own up to that. Listening to Spotify, I think one album ended and then it brought up a track from this record and I was like, wow, I haven't heard that in a long time and it sounds really good. And I just got really back into this album this week. It is We Are the 21st Century Ambassadors of Peace and Magic by Foxygen. And um, this is a band that I feel like had their moment in the early 2010s where they were getting a lot of good press. I have to say that like I actually reviewed their first EP, uh, Take the Kids Off Broadway, for Pitchfork. Um, and it's like maybe the only semi-momentous review I wrote for Pitchfork. Most of the records I reviewed for them <laughs> were totally forgettable. I would always get assigned like, you know the seventh Johnny Marr solo record or something to review. <laughs> Just like garbage. But anyway. That's a good niche. <laughs> um, but uh, this record, uh, the, the, the 21st Century Ambassadors record, this was their, I think, real breakthrough. This was the album that got a lot of attention. Absolutely. And um, to me, the thing I always loved about Foxygen was that they were a band that would take the building blocks of, of classic rock radio, everything from like the Beatles and the Beach Boys, you know, two touchstones we mentioned earlier to you know stuff from the 70s like electric light orchestra to like more i guess of like the garagey rock stuff uh that you would associate with bands of like brian jonestown massacre 
<laughs> and they would combine them in ways that I thought were always really interesting, where it wasn't just like a straight up pastiche of like one band. It was like taking like five bands and taking them apart and assembling them in like a different kind of order that you wouldn't expect. And there's a quality to it where if you love that kind of music, just listening to the way Foxygen can kind of scramble up those influences is always, I think, one of the pleasures of their records. It is, I guess, more of like, I guess, the meta music nerd aspect of those records. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, these guys just wrote really good songs that are catchy, that hold up really well. The song No Destruction from... The 21st yeah. Century Ambassadors record, great song. The song San Francisco, uh, just a beautiful kind of throwback 60s type pop song. Um, and the other thing about Foxygen that made them fascinating in the moment was just how chaotic they were, especially as a live act. They had a train wreck aspect to them where they could be the greatest band on earth or they could be the worst band. And it made them exciting to follow. Of course, it also made them terribly volatile and uh, I think ultimately caused them uh, to flame out. Uh, although the next record, which is called and star power, it's a double record, I think has a lot of great moments on it too. Yeah. Uh, of course now, you know, I, we've mentioned this person's name before on this podcast, Jonathan Rado has become a really great producer. He's worked with Ma- father John Misty. He worked on, uh, the last ways blood record, that awesome album, Titanic rising. Um, and you can hear echoes of oxygen in the work that he does with other artists. So he's definitely carrying that forward. It's nice to see that he has, uh, I guess, overcome the wildness of Foxygen's youth to have this upstanding career as a producer. Uh, the other member, Sam France, he seems to maybe be uh, yeah. still stuck in chaos, <laughs> yeah, uh, so to I, speak. But uh, this I, is a great record. If you've not listened to it, you know, since it was since it had its moment, I guess, seven years ago, I would encourage you to revisit it. I think it holds up really well. Yeah, I my history with Foxygen, I reviewed the last if you want to talk about like the niche of like reviewing the seventh Johnny Marr album, I actually reviewed the last Foxygen record and that was just like a real cashed bowl sort of thing. But I actually interviewed them uh the day before that review for this out, like uh the twenty first century came out. Like I interviewed them and they were completely out of their minds, but like also kind of fun. Um, and uh, yeah, they, they, they just seem like this sort of band that was going to, uh, kind of aerial pinkish sort of flame out, um, in a way, or just like kind of carry on to like a cult of weirdos, uh, no destruction, really resilient sync, uh, history. I would like, it just pops up in so many movies and TV shows. Um, and you know, San Francisco had also great song. Uh, that's one that all like I think they kind of made that song intentionally to be like a Wes Anderson pers- Wes Anderson pastiche, um, but yeah, it's been I don't know. And Star Power seems like Stephen Hyde and Catnip to me, like oh, the yeah. ambitious, like uh, sprawling double album, absolutely that from, like glam rock and whatnot. But pretty scattershot um, record, but like that's yeah. one of the if, if you give yourself over to it and just. You know, it's one of those like experience type records in the same way, like 69 love songs. If you're just like, hey, I want to immerse myself in a record and a record that's just going to give me a lot. And Star yeah. Power is definitely one of those records. But I would say that like if you just want to listen to one Foxygen album, yeah. we are the 21st century ambassadors of peace and magic is the way to go. I think that distills what they do yeah. in its best package. And then if you love that record, get into the other records. There's lots of other albums to explore. Maybe the later records aren't as good, but I think the early stuff holds up, so I recommend doing that. Um, 
We have reached the end of our episode, our trip to 1999. Uh, I'm sorry to have to deliver you back to 2020, uh, but, you know, hey, let's all hang in there. I think we'll hopefully be okay. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We will be back with more reviews and news and trends and all that stuff next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs) 